one of the things that I have always found wonderful about IndieBio. And again, yes, turning scientists into entrepreneurs, but also turning designers into entrepreneurs, turning individuals who never even thought they could be entrepreneurs, maybe turning people who didn't have a traditional science education into entrepreneurs. And I think we're seeing and finding all of those people and bringing them together and saying, come talk to us. Hey, Carl, how you doing? Good. How about you, Iram? I know it's been super busy. I can't believe we're like mid-August. Yeah, yeah. And we're trying to hustle so we can have some time off the week before Labor Day. But that's fine. I'm ready. It's been great. There's a lot of progress happening on our day-to-day messaging lab stuff and the podcast. We do have a great guest, which we'll reveal later, but it's been fun. And it's just great talking to all these founders and CEOs and just hearing what's going on in biotech and otherwise. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to hear what's going on. We thought that we would start off this podcast today by talking about something that was developed by the venture firm Not Boring, who I think we've mentioned a couple times. We know Elliot Hirschberg, who's at Not Boring. And then we know through following him in social media, the guy who runs it, Packy McCormick, who lives in my neighborhood in Park Slope. We don't know each other yet. Packy puts out like a couple of newsletters a week. And the latest one highlights something called the Science Fiction Idea Bank. This is one of those ideas where it's like, why didn't I think of this? Or why didn't we do this? He notes that there's a website called Technology, which basically compiles all the ideas that have been in science fiction and in science fiction novels, probably could be movies. I don't know. I haven't spent enough time reading into it. But Packy in his blog post mentions that ideas for new technologies almost always appear in science fiction before they show up in real life. What do you think, Iram? Do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I think we can point to a few things as we go through this doc. You know, they say it's science fiction before it becomes science fact. And I'm sure we've seen it in some regard. I feel like the internet is a good case when you know there's communications happening beyond phones, just into your watch. I feel like that's a lot of the Star Trek world of having the communicator. Yeah, you're yeah. totally right. Okay, so here's some crazy ones that he highlights, and then we'll go into what's in the database. And all of this stuff is publicly available, so we can link to it. And Packy put this together over a weekend using several AI tools. So he says, hey, did you know that Jonathan Swift foresaw 3D modeling, search engines, and biofuels, even floating rocks, in Gulliver's Travels back in 1726? Which is super interesting because Frankenstein, which is considered to be the first science fiction novel, doesn't appear for a hundred years after Culver's Travels. That's fascinating. Humanoid robots appeared in Ephraim Chambers' Cyclopedia in 1727. Wow. And apparently, John Jacob Astor IV, who was the richest passenger on the Titanic, wrote about rooftop windmills, security cameras, traffic cameras, regenerative braking, electric cars, hydrofoil boats, spaceships, airlocks in 1894. Those are old old ideas. What's interesting, you pointed this out to me, Iram, in terms of like, what year has the most ideas? When you do this search of science fiction novels, what year has the most ideas? Why don't you tell our listeners? And what was surprising about that? 
in this sci-fi idea bank, they pulled from technology, all of their data points to 1931 as having the most sci-fi ideas, which I find fascinating because it was actually depression times. I don't want to just jump to conclusions, but here I am speculating mm -hmm. is that people were down and out. They needed to read more about what the future can hold. Like this is not the way the world is, even though we're in depression times. Let's look to the future. And we had authors writing about what would be possible. So 1931, according to this analysis, had 152 ideas. 1965 had 112. And so 1965 is the heyday of Philip K. Dick. So Philip K. Dick is writing in the late 50s until his death in the 90s. And he's probably most well known for the do androids dream of electric sheep, which becomes Blade Runner. But Dick probably wrote like 50 novels. I've read most of them, I hate to say, but I do read a lot of science fiction, but I don't read enough science fiction. So what's interesting is you're making this observation about the depression and in the mid 60s things are going really well so i don't necessarily agree that depression drove a bunch of these ideas because if the 60s were a very progressive i don't know what was happening in 1965 i mean the tumultuous years of the late 60s come in 68 and then you've got the vietnam war and then you've got watergate but clearly there was something in the water in 1931 and also in 1965 and actually in 1941 those are the top three years for sci-fi ideas according to this sci-fi bank. Yeah, I did a little search on Phil K. Dick and what content is related to his work. You mentioned Blade Runner, but we have The Man in the High Castle, which was almost an alternative future yeah. where the axis of evil won the war. So the U.S. was half German and half Japanese split into two, but there was a lot of innovation that accelerated because of that in this storyline, which I thought was really interesting. You had supersonic jet planes in the 60s and then Minority Report, yeah. which I think was also very futuristic. A lot of sci-fi technical things going on there. Total Recall, that's a really big one. The imagination you have to have. And people have imaginations, but they might not take the next step of writing it down and then distributing it and then getting recognized. So good for Philip K. Dick and all of the stories that got out there and made it to this not boring sci-fi idea bank. Packy's point is science fiction is a goldmine for ideas for startups and points out that there's thousands of ideas that are waiting to be built when the time is right. And as AI explodes and energy, we move to zero marginal cost energy, space access becomes cheaper. We're here on this podcast talking about growing everything. A lot of breakthroughs will occur, but there's a lot of ideas out there that are waiting to be turned into companies and to turn into things that people use every day. Even the this LK99 interest that we had just a couple of weeks ago, which turned out not to be true, but it got so many people interested in it because if you could have room temperature semiconductors, you could do things like create more high-speed maglev trains, desktop quantum computers, fusion reactors become much more smaller and affordable, and power transmission over long distances becomes increasingly possible without losing energy. We're actually in a stage where we're bringing more science fiction to life than we ever have before looking at this idea bank is very inspirational and I haven't really spent enough time on it. I'm going to write a blog post on it, but I think that we could look at a lot of these ideas and think to ourselves, how would biology change this idea? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm going through this list. We need to wait for some more fundamental physics to be understood, but some of them could be made today. Artificial silk, talking about biotech, a fabric-like silk produced entirely without silkworms. This was talked about in 1897. And now we know companies that are doing this. We have Spiber that's making this, but there's a whole list. So that's science fiction. That is now science fact in the year, I would say 2019. I'm not sure when Spiber started. So uh, kind of like 
more like 10 years ago. So yes, but yeah. still like, hello, yeah. artificial silk. That's great. Yeah. I'm looking at some of the ideas that are say from more recent times. I said this in a comment on the thread. This is not comprehensive, this list. It's like I started looking to see if some of my favorite authors were in here. Of course, many of my favorite authors, William Gibson, J.G. Ballard, Philip K. Dick, and then a lot of the classic science fiction authors are in here. But then some new authors like Annalie Newitz, an older author, Octavia Butler, they're not here. Becky Chambers is also a new author. So I don't know if the way that technology looks at these companies or looks at these books, the latest ideas in this list are from 2023. It does go through a lot of stuff. There is a lot of new things, but there's probably a lot of things that are missing. There's even more ideas than the ones that are in this database. They're missing the ladies, the science fiction author ladies. They are represented, but probably not as widely as the men. Definitely not. Is there a female author that you see on this list? In the history of science fiction, there are a number of women who wrote under men's names. Oh. So those could be mentioned. I'm looking down the list right now just to see if there's any women that I recognize. And I have to say the ladies are underrepresented. And yet to me, some of the most... Surprise, surprise. I know. And yet some of the most interesting science fiction history historically was written by women. So that is disappointing. Margaret Atwood is there. She wrote The Handmaiden's Tale and the McAdam Trilogy, which is a very science fiction, dystopian trilogy of novels. Women are underrepresented. And I wonder if Mary Shelley is on here. Oh, yeah, yeah. She did write Frankenstein. Yep. I'm looking at these ideas and you're a fan of William Gibson. I haven't read Neuromancer, but I think you mentioned it a few times. Something that is biotech would be a microchip that's in planted in people to ensure compliance with company rules. Yeah. Okay. Here's science fiction turning into science fact. I just read that there is a drug that apparently is being manufactured in Syria or somewhere in the Middle East that is a work kind of drug. Here's an idea that I don't know if is listed in here, but that is part of the story of Autonomous by Annalie Newitz. This idea of drugs that you use to increase your focus. And right now in Europe, they're worried about this drug making its way to Europe. I think the name starts with a C. So it's very interesting when science fiction becomes reality. The drug in Autonomous, it's focused, but like a desire to work. There's drugs that make you focus today. There's ADHD medicine, but this takes it to another level where you really, really just want to work, but you end up working to death, which is a concept in Japan. It's called Kuroshi, I believe, where people just work to death. Yeah. It's really sad. Yeah, that is a pretty sad note. But the point is, is that science fiction can become science fact. The way that we create biotech, whether it's to regulate what we're thinking, what we're doing, how we're feeling, is very precious. We were talking about Painkiller, the show on Netflix, which I watched two episodes in a row. So I don't think that's binging, but I'm going down that rabbit hole and it's still pretty sad. But all this needs to come with more regulation, more insight. I think the FDA needs to bulk up a bit. We're having more biology and biotech coming online that can help tremendously, but balance the abuse and not everyone's created equal. We all have some different biology, we have different genetics, that all needs to be taken into consideration when developing pharmaceutical drugs, which I think we will have someone on soon. I mean, we had Jocelyn Pearl who talked about gene therapy, but someone from the pharmaceutical industry would be good, Carl. I mean, we have some peeps that we know, bring them in. And we have one client, I won't mention their name, but they had a really good pitch about what's wrong with drug development today. 
and how to improve it and make it safer where you can end untreatable diseases. So I think that would be really interesting to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot. But bottom line, there I know we'll be talking about this more in the future because this sci-fi idea bank just has so many ideas. And I think it'll be good for us to just kind of examine it a little bit more deeply. Let's use that as the opportunity to introduce our guests since this is about ideas. Our guest is someone who helps scientists bring ideas to life. Yes. One of my favorite guests, because she is a friend of ours, she's part of our Brooklyn biotech mafia. So we've known her for quite some time, saw her journey from the lab to being chief scientific officer of IndieBio. IndieBio is a startup experience... It's so funny. We we're just talking about how to describe it. People might classify it as an accelerator. I'm not doing that. So Sabria, if you're listening, Indie Bio peeps, if you're listening, I'm just saying it's an experience for scientists to get an education on how to build a company, how to grow it. What does it mean to take the science and technology out of the lab, productize it, get it out into the market? What makes sense? She gets to see a huge breadth of different ideas. So I'm kind of curious if we did an overlay of Indie Bio ideas and the sci-fi idea bank, what kind of things would be overlapping there? Sabria will share some of the companies that have gone through IndieBio. I'm very, 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 very excited that our listeners will get to enjoy the conversation that we had with Sabria Stukes of IndieBio. All right, let's take it away, Sabria. Hey, Sabria, what's up? Ah, Iram Carl, how are you? How's it going? How's it going? Happy Tuesday. Happy summer. How's your summer going? Happy summer. How is my summer going? It's great. We have been able to fit in some vacation, even though we have a nine-month-old. We've been to Italy, which I feel like everyone has been going to Italy this summer. We've been able to go to London, which was nice, but we've also just been able to hang out in the city. It's been a pretty solid summer, despite the changes in weather, the thunderstorms, everything that's been going on a global level. The Um, heat, the floods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been been pretty nice. Yeah, this is not in our questions, but when you predict global travel is going to stop? Unfortunately, I don't know if it will ever stop. Traveling is both a luxury and a privilege. And I think that being able to travel to get outside of your own bubble, see the world, everyone should be doing it. Look, we couldn't get people to stop traveling for a global pandemic. So I don't know if climate change is going to be the thing that people stay at home for. What would be nice to see is maybe more conversations around how do we support infrastructure? I think we've talked about this, Carl, slow travel, using trains, using boats more. And I probably don't have enough context or background to fully answer it. I hope people, like I said, might look to slower travel options. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So why don't we just kick it off? We're very excited to speak with you. Our audience, our listeners have been learning a lot about biotech, all the different companies that are coming on board. You are the chief scientific officer of IndieBio, which is actually, I'm not even going to define it. What I would love to do is pass the mic to you and for you to answer, what is IndieBio? IndieBio is a startup development program that invests in and supports early stage biotech companies using biology to solve human and planetary health problems. So maybe more simply, we turn scientists into entrepreneurs. But I think that the question of what we are is not as interesting as who we are and how we do it, because I think that is what really differentiates us from other programs or outfits that are supporting early stage companies across. 
across a number of different sectors. So I think who we are, I don't want to speak for everyone in my organization, but I would say from what I have seen is we are the people that are in SOSV, the people that are in IndieBio and Hacks and Orbit. These are the other programs that support early stage companies. I think we are people who are deeply passionate about changing the world. I know that can often be this, oh, like changing the world. That's a huge thing. And also like, whose world are we changing? What world are we changing? We all come from either STEM backgrounds or technical backgrounds or backgrounds that have allowed us to be curious about the world. And I think that we want to really impart that on the founders that we work with and really work with them in a very individual and hands-on way to really make sure that the technologies and the tools that they are developing see the light of day and get into the hands of the people who need them most. We make anywhere from 10 to 15 investments per cohort. We keep the cohorts quite small by design. I think it really allows us to work with the founders on an individual basis to fully understand the space that they're working in, who they are, what their technology is, who their customer is, who are the people in our network and our ecosystem that we need to put them in touch with. Because at the end of the day, our biggest goal is to get more money into these companies. We cannot do that unless we are obviously true advocates and champions of the company. And in order to do that, we really need to fully understand the space that they're working in. IndieBio, as far as I know, is the biggest global investor in early stage biotech. Absolutely. Number one in investing in early stage biotech. And I think that's a really interesting place to be in because we get to see like the big top of the funnel. We get to see all of the really interesting ideas, all of the interesting founders who are working on solving really big problems. The other thing that we as a team, again, both on the SOSV and DBIO other programs side, we work to help people realize big visions of how the world can be better. Yeah, that's great. I definitely want to go more into IndieBio, but let's take a step back. You're chief scientific officer. How did you become chief scientific officer? What's your background and how did you get to IndieBio? Great question. And I think that it is easy to connect the dots of my career when you tell this narrative in reverse. But in reality and in the moment, I don't think it was immediately clear that any of what I was doing <laughs> made sense. I would say the simple answer, kind of how I moved from having a PhD, working in a lab, to working in higher education, to then being an operations director at a startup, to then now this role. I think the thing that helped most was having people who believed in me more than I believed in myself saying, I think this is a really interesting opportunity and you should really think about taking it. A thing that has consistently been one of my guiding principles, or maybe you could even say North Star, is wanting to do work that helps support people to ask better questions about the world around them, including myself. At each juncture, I was asking myself, how can I challenge myself in this next role, independent of the title, independent of the space that I was working in? How can this new role expand not just my skill set, not not just what you see on my resume, but also like stretch my actual brain. I think I've been really lucky. And a lot of it I know is timing to have found these opportunities to find these roles that needed someone like me to fill them. One thing I would also like to mention is that when I was in grad school, none of the jobs that I currently have didn't exist. There was no master's in translational medicine program because I helped start that. There was no Stellate Therapeutics because that 
just hadn't been started yet. And so it wasn't even in my realm of thinking that I could possibly hold these titles or be doing this work. Like I said, was using this North Star of how can I do work that, like I just said, helps people ask better questions about the world around them, but then also stretches my own skill set and my own knowledge base. You were at a startup before you joined Indie but before that, when we first got to know each other, you were working at Cooney, you were in the public education space. What was that like for you to make that leap from education to being in the private sector, especially now that you're making investment decisions? Yeah, I think it was challenging. I think higher education is fantastic. I do think it can move a little bit slower than the pace in the role that I have now. So that is something that I think I needed to get up to speed with pretty quickly, but it's also something I really appreciated. What is the decision that needs to be made? Can we make it? Let's make it and see what happens. Whereas sometimes with higher education, it's let's form a committee, let's form a roundtable, let's have a bunch of discussions. Do we have the budget for it? And so things can tend to feel like they're moving at a glacial pace. But I think I appreciated that pace when I was there because, again, moving from working in a lab where I was very independent, designing experiments on my own, to then working in a small team, building out a curriculum that was focused on training scientists and engineers in the process of medical device commercialization, there was a need to make sure we were doing it thoughtfully, make sure we were doing it in a way that was, are these the right set of skills we need to train students in for each role that I was in, the pace of what the job was, was needed at the time. And then as with all things, as I shared earlier, you need to make decisions or you need to ask yourself questions like, is my brain really being stretched here? Am I still learning? Am I still gathering skills to add to my toolkit? That's also what led me to make some of the decisions I did make. I want to get back to what you had asked me, Iram, which is what is my background? And so I am trained as a microbiologist. I earned my PhD in biomedical science at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. But before that, I was working at the NYU School of Medicine doing research on tuberculosis. Before that, I was at the National Institute of Health doing work on HIV. And then before that, I got my bachelor's at Virginia Tech in biology with a concentration around microbiology and immunology. Although while my first foray into lab work was as an undergrad assistant in a plant biology lab, really what shaped a lot of my academic training was wanting to understand more about host pathogen interactions, specifically as it related to infectious diseases. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, your whole trajectory of your career is fascinating. I'm sure that a lot of the entrepreneurs that are in IndieBio can relate to you and you can relate to them because you mentioned the questions that you have to ask yourself, which entrepreneurs have to ask themselves all the time is, should I be doing this? Am I making the right decisions to take on all this risk and jump into the unknown? Because you were saying that a lot of the programs and roles that we found yourself in didn't exist. So you really also just jumped into unknown and ended up finding those things. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. And I think one thing to say about that too, and something I tell the founders, but also tell the students that I mentored and some that I still advise when they say, well, is this next career move the right decision or is it the wrong decision? And I say to them, I don't like that binary of good or bad or right or wrong decision. You should be as best you can making decisions based on the information that you have at hand. So have you done enough of the research to make sure that you are asking all the right questions about the space that you want to be in, 
or the space that you're building in. And then once you make that decision, you're going to get some more data and that's going to inform your next decision. Maybe it is the scientist in me kind of looking at everything like a little experiment. So it doesn't feel like nothing really fails. I made a decision. I made a choice. I learned some new information. I made a different choice based on that. So, you know, I do think that for me, I've been lucky enough to have thought about a lot of my decisions that way. And of course, that doesn't mean that in hindsight, I'm like, oh, that wasn't like that great of a decision. But at the end of the day, I try as best as I can to say I did the best I could with the information in front of me. And what more can you do? It's a great great way to live. Yeah. And you say it's a scientist in you, but in marketing, people say, and we say it too, there are no failures. There's only experiments. And in an ideal world, going from academia to entrepreneurship into business and back again would just be very normal. It still feels like it's not. It is an unfortunate reality that there aren't enough academic spaces for every PhD. You have to be thinking about where you're going to end up. And I think it's an unfortunate fact that higher education doesn't really even prepare people for the job world. Even as you're graduating as an undergraduate, you still aren't given the tools to go out and get a job. And it's even worse if you're a PhD when you've invested another four years or five years of your life studying a topic. And I think, you know, look, we could have a whole nother podcast conversation about that. I do think maybe where I see it most is when scientists say, I want to start a company or when someone who has more of a technical background, and I actually even hesitate to even use the word technical here, but when someone has more of a STEM focused background and they say, okay, I think I have a really interesting idea how do I make that into a company? I think where we come in, but also where higher education or even just education at large should come in or can come in is really introducing some of that business language to more entrepreneurially minded scientists earlier. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like there are oftentimes when we get companies or we review companies or we hear pitches, I am like, this is so interesting. The science is great. The data that you've showed me is really compelling, but is it a business? Is it a company? Can you talk to me more about building an actual company around this technology. Some founders are very good at it because they've thought about it often or they've had training or their school has programs and things like that that support that. And some obviously need more work. I do think that here in New York, we are seeing so much activity around supporting more entrepreneurially minded scientists. That is also not to say that every scientist needs to be a CEO. I think what we're seeing is not just support around entrepreneurially minded scientists, but support around, well, how do we actually build a biotech ecosystem where we can support everyone at the various stages of early stage to late stage to series A, series B companies, while also supporting workforce development and the training of folks who don't necessarily want to run the company, but want to be employee number four, five, six, seven, and beyond. So I think we are seeing a shift. And I'm sure Iram and Carl, you probably have stories around this as well, being in New York for as long as we have. I think we are seeing a shift in this narrative of PhDs can't be good CEOs. And I think we're also seeing a shift in this amount of support, both financially and on the resource side, in making sure that New York is a legitimate space where biotech can grow. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's so much going on in New York in terms of biotech. You're seeing so many companies just through IndieBio and you have to pick and choose. You have to pick and choose. Unfortunately, I'm just going to put numbers out there. You might see like 100 companies in one cohort session, but you can only pick 15. I want to ask a two-part question, maybe three-part. First, give us an idea of what type of companies you've invested in in IndieBio and then comment on the breadth of those companies, like how they differ and how does that reflect the changing landscape 
landscape of biotech, whether in New York or elsewhere? I want to give you a holistic answer that hopefully touches on everything that you just raised. I think at IndieBio and at SOSV, which is the venture capital firm that supports our program, our mission, our ethos is supporting founders who are using biology to solve human and planetary health problems. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a very generic statement, but it is a true statement in that there are many different disciplines that could align with that. So if you think about the companies we invest in, therapeutics, biomaterials, computational biology, cellular agriculture companies, future food companies, consumer biology companies, industrial biologies, and that's just us. That also doesn't mean, though, that we don't see companies that are operating in spaces that we don't even know about yet. I think the evolution of science and biotech is such that in a year from now, two years from now, all of the things that I just rattled off, there's probably going to be, let's say, five or six or however many more verticals that are coming up because of, let's just say, we can talk about AI, we can talk about synthetic biology, we can talk about genetic engineering. But the pace of what's coming out from basic science research, which I do think on some level informs the translational research that we see, it's going to be very exciting to see the companies that we will be looking at a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and so on. As you said, I talk to founders, I see company pitches two to five decks a day almost. I think today I have like three different calls with companies just to hear about their technologies. And so it can feel like drinking from a fire hose, which is fantastic because it, like I said, man, if I wanted a job to really stretch my brain, this is it. But how do you pick the one that feels really exciting? Or how do you pick the team that is going to be the one that takes it all the way? It is a question and it is a activity that I am refining constantly. It is a muscle that I am trying to strengthen with every pitch that I see. We do ask some of these standards questions of how do you know that it works? How are you going to make money? Who is your customer? But I think with each pitch that I see, with each founder that I talk to, I'm learning more nuanced questions to answer so that I can get to a no or a yes faster. I also look at, well, what do we have in our portfolio? What do we not have in our portfolio? What are the gaps in the solutions or the problems that we're seeing? It's so important to know what do you have, but also like, what do you not have? Because I then think that helps actually identify the interesting companies a little bit easier. Yeah, I was going to make a comment and then I'll ask a question. So Genetic Engineering News, a magazine and website, puts out a list of the top U.S. biotech ecosystems. Not surprisingly, Boston and San Francisco are usually at the top. This year, San Francisco moved Boston out of the top and is now the number one ecosystem. I don't know if New York is three or four, but we're definitely in the top five. But when you combine us with New Jersey, you do have this really interesting ecosystem because New Jersey is the global capital of drug development. That's one the second comment I would say is, Sabri, you were talking about founders and the support system and the resources. I think it's probably easier for anybody to become an entrepreneur today than ever in history. I think it's still hard for PhDs because, again, it's not necessarily presented as a career path, but it is a viable one. And I think it's very important because I often will say it on the podcast that we're in a point in time where we need every solution everywhere all at once, and we need to really accelerate what we're doing. We start off by talking a little bit about the weather this year. We've seen that seven out of the eight planetary boundaries have been crossed. So there's a lot to be solved. At the same time, there's a lot of positive, great things happening. But I'm kind of curious, you know, from your point of view, you've seen a lot of startups. Why do some people succeed and other ones fail? I mean, there's failure all the time. We were just talking about Amaris declaring bankruptcy. What have you seen? What makes a company successful versus another one? 
Yeah, the simplest answer, or maybe one of the simplest answers is successful companies can continue to raise money. And that can look like raising venture capital funding. That can look like finding product market fit. So when we bring companies into the program from day one, we tell them a lot of things. We work with them on a lot of different aspects of their company, but all of it really aligns with don't run out of money. And that could either mean not being able to raise future financing rounds or not finding product market fit so that you don't have continuing revenue. You don't know who your customer really is. You don't know how you're going to sell the product. Obviously, some of our companies are able to continue on and raise grant funding or some non-diluta funding. But at the end of the day, a lot of companies fail because they've run out of money. Or maybe the science doesn't say what they would like it to say in terms of actually solving the problem that they said that they were solving for or doing the thing that their solution should be doing. Now, again, that could still potentially maybe be solved with more money because you can then be able to run more experiments. You can ask different questions. You can say, okay, now we're going to pivot and look at this indication. So while I do think a lot of it does come down to money, part of it is also timing in terms of what money is available. What are investors investing in at the moment? What are consumers interested and excited about? You said they run out of money, but that's because there's a lot of planning they have to do to ensure that, okay, we're going to run out of money in 10 months. They have planned their financials out and make different decisions, whether it is raising money sooner or trying to get a customer to do a pilot and figure out the running out of money is a consequence of something else that's not working. Yeah, no. And I I appreciate the nuance that you're injecting in that. And I apologize for even being so simplistic of like, don't run out of money. Like, obviously, (laughs) don't run out of money. But I think that the challenge too with investing in early stage biotech is each company needs something different. And maybe I shouldn't even use the word challenge. Just something that we need to keep in mind when we're working with companies is each company will need something different because each company is working in such a unique space. Like a therapeutics company is going to need something different than a biomaterials company in terms of what does that long-term planning look like? What does that budget look like? What does that key investor look like? So I think that both as investors, but then also as champions of these companies, as someone who's a scientist who works with the companies to identify like, well, what is that key piece of data that would be interesting for an investor? We were talking about in a previous episode in the commentary about the new Netflix show, Painkiller, which is about Purdue Pharmaceuticals and OxyContin and how that is devastating communities. So that's a really interesting show. I only watched the first few episodes, but the whole thing and how they really got very far is sales and marketing. Mm. And obviously, Carl and I love sales and marketing because that's what we do on the day to day, but it is everything, right? You could have amazing science to yes. build an interesting technology that then needs to have a product. What is a yes. customer facing experience? Yes. But even all of that, if there's no story, if it's not compelling enough to the end user, it's not going to well, go anywhere. Both the end user and the investor. Yeah, yeah. right, right. I say probably more often than the founders would like to hear that after a pitch, an investor should be inspired and informed, not confused. Yes. Because if you can inspire them to be excited about your product, if you can inform them and give them some new information about the world or about your technology, about your solution that they didn't know before, that's the little seed that's going to be planted in their brain. So when they're walking around or when they're talking to their other investors or when they're talking to someone, they can just say, oh my gosh, I just talked to this company that's solving this problem by doing this. What is the one sentence, one takeaway thing without getting too lost in the weeds? Because again, they'll follow up with you. They'll say, hey, I was so interested by what you said. I'd love to learn more. Like, that's what you want to hear. Right. You don't want to just hear, oh, okay. 
Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, so whatever. This is also, again, part and parcel of when we work with founders, when we work with scientists who want to build companies, it's not just, oh, you have a cool technology or an interesting piece of data. I know you think it's interesting. I know you think it's compelling, but how are you conveying that to anyone else around you, no matter what their educational training and or professional background is? How are you speaking to them? The adage of meeting people where they are at. This is not exercise in quote unquote, dumbing down what you're doing. You should be able to have a conversation about your solution, about the space that you're working in across a number of different disciplines and backgrounds, because you want investors to be excited about what you're building. You want customers to be excited about what you're building. You also want your potential hires to be excited about what you're building. You want people who are going to work with you and like mm-hmm. who realize your vision. I know sales and marketing and PR can often have or get a bad rap. It is so critical, especially at such an early stage to really nail that or really just know what is the thing that is going to get people excited about what I'm building. Yeah. Yeah, It's all communications, all storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. So I have some other questions here. We're talking about why some companies (laughs) succeed and why others fail in the experience that you've seen. But I'm actually curious, you see so many companies to five a day. On average. I mean, on average. And it also depends. Like, I mean, we're always recruiting. I just want to plug, like we are always looking for interesting companies. It's never too early to have a conversation with us. Influx of application ebbs and flows. Right. Yeah. Carl and I, we talk about seeing about five companies a week. So you guys, I mean, obviously you're an accelerator. We're just people that are um, helping these companies. We are not an accelerator. (laughs) (laughs) Snap. Yes. You are a program that's helping scientists become CEOs to improve human and planetary health. Maybe in terms of like communication and marketing and sales, like I was saying at the onset of the conversation, I feel like program is a word we use because it's the word that we've got. But I think yeah. that it isn't so much about what we do. It is how we do it. That we I are a startup experience. Yeah. Biotech startup experience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to help you raise funding and improve planetary health. And human, and human health. health, yeah. Yeah. But so since you see so many startups, I'm curious, is there a common type of company that you see you're like, oh no, another AI drug discovery platform? I mean, I'm sure everyone's working hard. They see problem. I know when I had a company, I thought we were the only company to think about this, but it turns out there were a lot of different companies. Just curious to see if there's common types of companies you see. We're like, okay, it's interesting that there's just so many people yeah. that are pitching this idea. Yeah. I mean, I think as with many things, it's cyclical. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. yes, right now, AI is on the forefront of everyone's brain. So we do see a number of companies, drug discovery for AI or AI in cellular agriculture, in fermentation. It's not so much that I roll my eyes at companies if I'm seeing a lot of the same thing. If you are saying you're using AI for X, how? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Do you really need this? What it actually helps me do, it helps me refine the questions that I ask each of the companies to really scratch beneath the surface to make sure that they actually understand what they're talking about, or is it they're saying it because it is the flavor of the moment? I mean, we've been counseling people, don't mention AI or machine learning. It's almost table stakes at this point. Everybody's using it. If you do, just make sure you know what you're talking about or why you're using it or why is it really necessary? It, again, really comes down to the communication. It comes down to storytelling. I am not an AI expert. Like I said, microbiology is my jam. If me as a microbiologist is asking you, 
I think, fairly basic questions about AI in your model. And you were either having trouble explaining it to me or even like some ways maybe talking down to me like, oh, I should know this. It's like, well, I don't know how much longer this conversation is going to go up because like I said, I want to be informed. Obviously, I want to be inspired. I don't want to be confused, but I also want to have conversations that feel like it is a conversation, not just someone lecturing me about their technology or about the space that they're working in. And you've heard us say it before. It's like when you're just going to talk about the technology, you're going to lose people, investors. Like you said earlier, you want investors to walk away inspired by what you told them in terms of what you're solving, what the benefits are for humanity or the audience or customer base that they're going after. And just focusing on the technology. I mean, look, we love technology and we spend our days talking about technology. Absolutely. That's not inspiring. But the other thing is technology can be inspiring. Again, I think the challenge I often find is that I don't want individuals to hear what I'm saying and think it is like one size fits all advice, everything with nuance, of course. So your technology actually should be inspiring. It should be exciting. And you should be able to convey that. And I get that oftentimes you want to make the best first impression, especially when it comes to investors. And especially if you don't know if you'll ever either see that investor again. But the idea or the goal should be that they should want to have a follow-up conversation with you because what you told them in whatever narrative you were able to create was compelling and interesting enough for them to say, I want a follow-up conversation. I want to learn more. Or like, I know we're just at this event and we only have five minutes, but definitely email me. Obviously, I know people are busy and, and whatever, but I think that's the kind of energy or interest you want to see from an investor And I do think that there's ways to incorporate the how of your technology into that. Often what ends up happening is people do get too into the weeds, which is like, oh, I was just trying to have a casual conversation about like what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. How are you solving the problem? How are you contributing to the world? And then it's like technology part is often what's your IP? How are you protecting? And for investors, I think that's what they're interested in is like, okay, what would stop someone else from doing what you're doing? And that's where the deeper technology conversation comes into play. Yeah. But oftentimes it's like, how are you going to sell this and make me money. Like that's the ultimate what investors are going to think about. It's like, how are you going to 10x my investment? Yeah. And I'll say, (laughs) speaking of, you know, strengthening your muscle in a specific area, I feel like for me in the very beginning, when I was having these calls with scientific founders, we would talk for half an hour about the science. And then I would go to my team and I would be like, oh my gosh, there's very interesting science. And then they would ask me these business questions. And I was like, oh, right, right, right. (laughs) I'm on my business hat. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk about the science always, but still need to glean in some way who's going to buy this and how much you know, are they going to buy it for and how do you know they need it? So I think being able to integrate those questions into the scientific conversation early has been really key for me in really looking at the holistic picture of a company. Right. And I think that is a superpower, which I'm sure that going through DeBio, you and your team help train these founders is because if they are scientists or PhDs, they've been working on a very narrow, small problem for a very, very long time. Or on the business side, you have to think globally, big vision. So going from something narrow to something very wide is it an exercise in your brain power, right? Like, how do you think Yeah, we are introducing a new language, a new way of thinking to these founders that maybe was not shown to them or they did not think about 
about. Now, again, I know I said earlier, New York and others are doing a really good job of creating more programs, more learnings, more tools, so that if you are, you know, a fourth year or fifth year PhD, and you're thinking, you know, what are my next steps, or I'm really interested in starting a company, there are mechanisms or ways for you to kind of learn some of that language sooner. There's a difference between learning a language and then a difference between actually putting it into practice. Oh, yeah. Uh, So I think that we really love and appreciate founders who maybe have some understanding of that language but also know that many of them are still learning it. And really what we want to help them with or what we support them on is like actually putting that into practice. Yeah. So you mentioned New York City. We all know each other pretty well and hang out a lot in New York City. But you've said New York doesn't really need anything when it comes to biotech. What do you mean by that? Part one and part two is what are some of the advantages of IndieBio being located here? Yeah. So maybe for some context, what Carl is referring to is I've been on panels and the three of us have been in conversations where the talking point is, Carl, you mentioned this earlier, these lists of biotech ecosystems and your best places to build biotech and New York. We're like close to number one, but we never seem to be getting there. I'm a New York or nowhere kind of gal. I've been here for over 18 years and I don't think we need to be comparing ourselves to anyone. A lot of times the conversation is like, what is New York missing? When I have said, I don't think it's missing anything. I think we have all the right components and ingredients for a thriving biotech ecosystem. I think maybe if anything was missing is just the connectivity between all of that, between industry, between academia, between real estate, between consumers. I think that there are some individuals who still don't know or think that New York is a place and not just New York City, right? New York State is a place where you can have a thriving biotech company. We are seeing some of these successes on the horizon. We might not have big successes like Boston or San Francisco, but that A, doesn't mean that they're not coming. And B, doesn't mean that with the right support, with the right infrastructure, we won't see those sooner rather than later. I think a big point of contention that has always been part of these conversations is that there is no physical lab space for companies to be built out. I think that we are seeing, again, similarly to the shift in the interest for like academic institutions to start programs or accelerators or incubators at the institutions, we are also seeing the build out of step out space for companies who are one to two founders or maybe two founders and a team member to a space that can accommodate 10 employees, 15 employees, 20 employees. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there isn't room for improvement. I think that there still is a a little bit of a gap in between space for these. If you're going to go from like two to five and then to 10 to 20, there's still room for more space for those kind of middle companies, middle-sized companies, but it's coming. I think the three of us, we've had this conversation with folks, both at the state level, the city level, the community level, even around like what is needed, how can we support each other? So I don't think it's missing anything per se. I do think work needs to be done around strengthening the connectivity around who is doing what, what has already been done, what lessons can we learn from people that have done it in the past, and making sure that we are actually bringing everyone at a variety of levels, like I said, from the state to the city, to graduate students, to undergrads, to people in the communities where these labs are being built, bringing them into the conversation to make sure that it truly is an ecosystem and understanding between what we're trying to build. 
Right. Yeah. And like you were saying, it's not just New York City, it's New York State, but it's also Brooklyn. Hello. We're all in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is bigger than New York City. So there's a lot of space here. There's a lot of space that we can leverage. I wanted to talk about when we were at that Build Spy event, you were on a panel. We were with a lot of our biotech friends at Industry City, which is becoming a biotech center. They have three biomanufacturing, like small pilot plants that are opening up. So hello to our friends. You will have Vishal on this podcast soon of Annika Biosciences. But after the event, you're hanging out and we were talking about how New York is different than Boston and SF. And Mm. you made a really good point on the types of people and the types of conversations that we have are very different from when you go to SF and Boston. You're talking really about a lot of the science and technology. But when you come to New York, we talk a lot about other things besides biotech. We have a different type of conversation, which facilitates relationships. It builds more trust. Do you want to talk about that and what you're thinking? behind that? What was I thinking behind that? Because I was like, wow, that sounds really astute. And yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're saying like, because it's because true. Yeah, it, we it come together, we, we talk. Yeah. And I think that it comes down to, and again, this is obviously only from my own perspective. I think being lucky enough to live in New York for as long as I have and being able to build these kinds of relationships with individuals at every stage of my career. I mean, I've known you guys for many years. You've seen me through professional transitions through personal transitions, even though, sure, maybe 60% of the time we do talk about biotech. We also, to your point, talk about, well, what are you reading? What are you doing this weekend? How are your families? And I do feel like that has made me feel like I've been, I don't want to say like growing up with a group of folks, because again, we are all moving in different spaces and have different roles. But I think for me, because I went to grad school here, because I have had all these different kinds of jobs here, I have been able to really build my network around folks who are excited and passionate about building the biotech ecosystem, but independent of that are still really interesting and curious people. And that's not to say that those individuals are not in San Francisco and Boston. Again, I don't want to do the comparing or pitting cities against each other, but I do feel like New York attracts a certain kind of person, not just for the biotech ecosystem, but just for life. And I think those folks, because of the density of New York City, we just tend to bump into each other more. One of the things that I have always found wonderful about Indie Bio, and again, yes, turning scientists into entrepreneurs, but also turning designers into entrepreneurs, turning individuals who never even thought they could be entrepreneurs, maybe turning people who didn't have a traditional science education into entrepreneurs. And I think we're seeing and finding all of those people in New York city and state and like bringing them together saying like, come talk to us. I'd like to think we are relatively easy bunch. If you see us at an event, hang out with us. Although I will say Carl is like the master connector because every event I've ever been to with Carl, Carl, you're so great at this. You just like introduce someone to me and then you sort of like melt away into the background. And I'm like, wait, where did Carl go? Ninja connector. But But like, thanks so much for making this connection because like, you know who I am and you know the folks that would be interested in the work that I'm doing and vice versa. So So I think that New York does have a certain kind of energy that is hard to replicate in other places. And I think that is a key factor in seeing the kinds of companies that we're seeing in terms of companies that are working in and around New York. 
Yeah, a lot of people from unconventional backgrounds. And, you know, they say if you can make it here in New York City, you can make it anywhere. So and I think, you know, one thing you said earlier, Carl, kind of about bringing people into climate tech and solutions and human health. It is an all hands on deck activity. One of the things that is so important in looking at supporting biotech companies isn't just who is building it, but it is who are they building it for? What community have they been able to go? into and talk to, or is it actually someone from that community building that? Because it isn't just what are the kinds of founders we are supporting? It's where are we finding these founders? What institutions are we looking at? What institutions are we not looking at? What solutions are we seeing? What problems are we seeing? What problems are we not seeing? Because it is easy to say, my company is solving climate change. But like, what does that mean? What are you actually solving for? And because SOSC is a global venture capital firm, you know, we do cast a wide net in terms of looking for founders who are solving problems as it relates to like their geographical region, right? When we see a lot of LATAM companies, many of them are cellular agriculture companies or soil remediation companies, because that is the problem that they are seeing. And so for us, it's like, okay, we know that that's a problem there. So we know some of the companies that are going to come out of that region. If we know that, what else do we know about different regions around the world? How can we make sure, again, that we are not just supporting the best founders, but making sure that we are looking everywhere for different kinds of problems, different kinds of solutions, different founders. Yeah, I want to be super mindful of time, but I'm curious, Sabria, if there's anything that we didn't get a cover today that you wish we would have asked you. So many things. I know folks often ask, like, well, can you talk about success stories or what are the big splashy things that you want to talk about a certain company? And I think because I've only been here for a little over a year, we haven't yet seen that billion dollar exit that we hope we will see in the companies that we've invested in. But I think what I find most rewarding about the work that I am able to do right now with early stage founders is that seeing their small successes over time, how those add up to really big wins for them. I know this might sound kind of cheesy, but it is so inspiring to work with a company at the earliest stages of their development. Then six months, they'll come back to us and say, we've been able to do the thing or we've been able to land the partnership. We've been able to make that key higher. Maybe one concrete example I'll give is one of the companies in our last batch of IndieBio New York 6 named Emma. They just released their first product yesterday. So it's a CB based depository that helps manage period pain, you can go on their website right now and buy it. When they're in the program, that was the idea. So to see the idea turn into reality, to me, is a success. And then obviously to continue seeing those successes go on. And even selfishly for me, there are other companies like our food tech companies, like we have a company in our current batch called Mucoco. They're making cocoa-free chocolate and they continue to refine the taste and texture of this. The product that I was able to taste now is so different than the product that they came into the program with. Seeing that they've been able to reiterate, refine over the course of six months, it's really inspiring to see what founders are able to do, obviously with some money and a little bit of time and a lot of support. My hope is that if you ever have me back on the podcast... We will. 
<laughs> uh, you know, if you talk to me in a year that I'll be able to have even more success stories. But one thing that I do want to end on is we had our annual general meeting earlier this year and Sean O'Sullivan, who's the managing director for SOSV, opened the day by saying it is reasonable to think that in five years, in 10 years, that so many SOSV, IndieBio and Hacks companies, their technologies and their products will be out there in the world so that so many people's lives will be changed by the tools and the technologies that our founders have built. And I think we're already seeing some of that today and very much looking forward to, like I said, having me on again. And I can tell you even more success stories. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you so much, Sabria. That's a great way to end it. Yeah, and hopefully we see you soon. We know that there's a biotech event tonight. I'm not sure if you know about it, but we will talk offline because it is a private event. But I'm sure that we will see you soon. It's always a joy to speak with you. I can't wait to talk with you some more. So thank you for joining us on Grow Everything podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, Iram, how'd you like that conversation with Sabria? It's great. I just felt like we were hanging out, chit-chatting like we do. I'm glad that we were able to record these conversations because I'm sure a lot of people out there, when they have great conversations with their friends or colleagues, they're like, oh, I wish I could record it and share it with the world. And here we are. We did it with Sabria. Finally. I don't know why it took so long because we've known her for such a long time. But I mean, I just love talking to her because we get to geek out. But like she said in the podcast, we're also friends. She has little baby girl and I had a child before. So like we related on that parent level. I know you're a parent, but you are a very experienced parent. Your kids are teens and then their 20s. So it's just great to talk to her and learn about what's going on. A lot of the conversations that we have with Sabria are about specific companies. What's going on? What do we see versus what she sees? What's brilliant about her is that she has a balance. What we mentioned in the podcast is the idea of going very narrow into the science, looking at something very specific and then make the leap, the thought exercise of going high level business. And you need to be a special type of person in order to do that. And she's turning these people out based on her own experience, her and the team at IndieBio. If anyone here is a PhD candidate or even just college or anyone, there is an avenue to be a part of a company or start a company. You don't have to go and get an MBA, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't have MBAs. A lot of the successful ones that have the unicorn companies, if you want to become a consultant for the big five consultancies, MBA is a must, but But for starting a company, you have to have a really solid idea, get your crew together, go to programs or startup experiences like IndieBio. Yeah. And like I mentioned during the conversation, it turns out that IndieBio is the largest investor in early stage biotech. I've been a huge fan of IndieBio from the beginning. I've known them since essentially they were started, have been to the space that they have in San Francisco many times, have served as a mentor to the companies and was thrilled when they opened up here in New York City. And given that they are the largest investor in biotech, they see a lot of everything and a lot of very smart scientists who are forming companies across every industry, agriculture, food, beverage, personal care and beauty, medicine, construction materials, you name it, they've probably had a company come go through their experience. So I always welcome the conversations with Sabrina, consider her a friend. I'm glad that she's in our neighborhood and that we had that great conversation with her. And I think it would be interesting to do the Venn diagram of this science fiction idea bank that we 
started the conversation with and what has gone through IndieBio, I always thought it would be interesting to look at all the companies that have gone through Y Combinator, which is world famous early stage company accelerator. They didn't start adding biotech companies until the mid 2010s. Kinko Bioworks was one of the first biotech companies to go through Y Combinator. But I always thought it'd be interesting to look at the list of all the companies that have gone through and take that as inspiration for, oh, how can I biologize this particular company? Oh, that would be really good. We should have pitched that to the YCOM team or the A16Z. Well, I think we should do a sci-fi idea bank for Y Combinator that shows how you biologize different ideas that have gone through there because they're not all successful. And that is the case with all incubators, accelerators, or experiences like IndieBio. Not not every company is going to make it. And that's the joy of what we do. But maybe they would be successful if they biologized it. There you go. See, this is what we do here. This is what we do to grow everything. We just figure out how to grow stuff versus just some of the old ways of doing things. One thing I did want to talk about, maybe in detail in the future, but ideas that were great that could have just changed the world, but just didn't make it for whatever. So we mentioned people not making decisions and running out of money, or they maybe just couldn't communicate it clearly. Like, will we have a different world where like right now it's like Apple that's dominating and we have this smartphone interface with technology. But like maybe someone had an idea of building walls as a computer interface, not necessarily carrying like a phone in our pocket, but maybe it's like a combination of some other personal device, but our interactions with technology really happen at home and or like inside a building where you can just go to a screen and interact, do whatever you want. Like it could just recognize that, oh, it's Carl. Here's Carl's dashboard of things he needs to do, maybe at a cafe, and then you're gone. So like you don't own device devices are everywhere. You just go up to them, it recognizes you and you do what you got to do, but then you're kind of free from it. I know that's a bit of a rabbit hole, but just the whole idea is that how could our present day be different if ideas that were pitched probably in reality were pitched in the past, but just didn't make it. I would say kind of the biggest thing that comes to mind is Tesla versus Thomas Edison. Tesla had great idea of energy being permeated everywhere. And then Edison had the ideas of using copper wire electricity, had friends and people in high places that were like, yeah, I have a lot of copper. Let's do it that way so we can all make a lot of money and get all the subsidies. The light bulb is the thing. Electricity through copper wires is what we're going to be doing because we got all the crew together and then it's a way to make more money where Tesla's idea maybe would not have generated more money for people, but it would have been more like open and accessible to people. Yeah, I don't know enough of that history. I do know that Edison had you know, invented direct current and Tesla invented alternating current, which is what we primarily use. And I think Edison was a diehard when it came to direct current, which is actually much more dangerous. We don't use it except for maybe like the trains are run on direct current, the subway trains in New York City. But I just want to mention there was a blog post that was just posted by Climate Capital where they talk about why they have a bio fund, which I think is very much apropos to what Sabria and IndieBio is doing. And this climate tech fund is also investing in biotech. And as our friend Kristen Ellis pointed out, they're the same thing. But what what I find interesting about this post is they talk about the things that founders need. And this is across probably all industries. I think it is acute in biotech. They mentioned that founders, early stage climate biotech founders need capital, so money, storytelling, so that they understand how to tell their story in a way that is going to make impact, network.
networking, so connecting to the right people, potential partners, business strategy, technology, and company building. I thought those were all interesting, especially since capital storytelling are the top two. And we talk about capital storytelling a lot at Messaging Lab. That is one of the things that we help people with. So we'll put this in the show notes so that people can see this. But unless you have anything else, Iram, I think that's the pod. Yeah, that's the pod. There's lots of ideas out there. We hope that people are inspired to contemplate them, to talk to us about it. We do have our Grow Everything hotline. So if you have a burning question or comment, if you were like, oh, you forgot to mention this idea or this author, or you have an idea and just wanted to share it and kind of you know riff on it, give us a call at 804-505-5553. That is 804-505-5553. That number is in our show notes. Just click on it, add it to your contacts. And anytime you think of anything biotech related or just want to give us a call, please do so. We would love to hear from you. And that's it. So hope you guys are enjoying this summer. We know we are and we will be back next week. Yeah. Okay. I will see you later, Iram. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. 